So, you slept in. Hey, we're not judging. Sometimes you need to get a little more sleep. And if you do need to snooze, we'd much rather you did that at home in your warm, comfortable bed than in our pews. You can always catch up with the sermon later, right here on the Sunday Morning Sleep In podcast. Now, you'll miss out by not coming to church. Like, there's good hugs and friendly people and support and encouragement. We have all the hugs. All the hugs. There's some music and children giving funny answers at children's time. And we won't be able to give you any snacks after worship, but we'll give you what we can. I'm Chris Marshall. And I'm Susan Foster. And we are United Methodist Pastors in Reno, Nevada. We're not theological experts. We're not homiletical harbingers of a new age. We're not circus performers. We cannot do amazing feats of strength in front of you. We are just your average pastors helping our congregations think through life's big questions every week. We started this podcast, so if you're away from home or working or coaching your kid's soccer team, or maybe just sleeping in, you can keep up with some of the ideas floating around the church. So whatever day it is when you're listening to this, all we ask is that you keep an open heart and an open mind. Quick note, we're serious about that. We really don't think you have to agree with everything we say. In fact, we encourage you to question, to disagree, and to figure out what you think. But our sincere hope is that in the midst of all of that, you will experience the mysterious loving force in the world we know as God moving in your life as you consider this. So this scripture this morning is from the book of John. And John of the four Gospels in the New Testament, the stories of Jesus's life, the good news, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the most touchy-feely of all of the the Gospels. He's the mystic. He's the like, I love you and you love me and God loves us and I'm in you and God's in me and God's in you and you're in God. And he does like a little bit of... It's very annoying. (laughs) So hashtag, this is not Chris's favorite book. Not my favorite gospel. And I've had people who have like my personality type who are like, oh, I love John because you just realize it's about the relationships. And I'm like, yeah, but you have to... You have to spend so much time with John, like pulling away all of the garbage that we've layered on top of the relationships that it really feels very conditional to me most of the time. So I'm trying to have grace for John. And of all of the stories in John, this is one of my favorites. (laughs) So John is this touchy-feely gospel that's all about love. And the beautiful thing is that what John says is that grace is so important Jesus is willing to step outside of what is normal um, in order to help us to understand it. Mm -hmm. So this story happens very early in the book of John, John 2. It's the story of Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple. Right. And it's vicious and I love it. (laughs) But the only other thing Jesus does before this in the gospel of John Mm -hmm. is turning water into wine. The story of turning water into wine is another example of Jesus stepping outside what is normal, what is customary, in order to help people understand grace. And we often just think it's like, yeah, Jesus made the party awesome. He did, but he did it in a theological way. Right. Well, and and when you think about it, like, isn't grace somewhat about changing the party? Breaking boundaries. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So... So at any kind of gathering space, there would have been these giant barrels, which were right. used to hold water. Only they were used to hold water for ritual cleansing so that you could decide who was clean, who could come in, and who was and not, not clean, clean, who had to stay out. Right. And there were lots of things that would make you not clean. Right. Women being female would make them not clean. Right. Like there were different things that would keep you out. Oh, yeah. And actually, these barrels, this water had become so ingrained in people's head, who's in and who's out, that they didn't actually even fill water into them anymore. (laughs) They were just empty barrels that would stand there to remind you if you were good enough or not Uh, to enter into a holy space. Well, because water is, you don't want water just evaporating, you know. Right, well, we could get into like the logistics of it or whatever. But the point was, it wasn't even a thing anymore. Right. 
So when the wedding guests are realizing that they're running out of wine, the hosts have not provided enough wine, which is a party no-no. That's like a major no-no. Mary turns to Jesus and says, son... I think Take you care should. Of it. I think you should do something about this. And Jesus says, "Woman, it is not my time." And Mary Mom. says, "I brought you into this world, I and I can take you out of it." And Jesus says, "Okay." And so he, uh, he gets scolded by his mom into doing the right thing here. So he has these barrels that were used for ritual cleansing and not used at all, filled with water. Right. And then he turns the water into wine. He turns into really good wine. Well, the idea is that he didn't just make enough wine. For the people at the party. Right. He made enough wine for everybody in the village for the rest of the year. Right. Like when you consider how big these vessels are. and So that was Jesus's way of saying everybody is invited to experience right. this miraculous grace, this right. love of God that is unconditional, that is not based on who's clean and who's right. unclean. Right. So Jesus does this and then immediately goes to the temple and sees, well, here's another barrier, right? We right. have some more barrels and they're in the form of people who are selling you the stuff that you need to buy in order to go into where it's holy. Right. And it makes him furious. Right. It makes him really angry and he disrupts the temple. Uh, he chases everybody out, braids a whip. It's great. Yeah. Whenever, in fact, I told my congregation this and it made them uncomfortable. I said, whenever I see somebody taking God's name in vain mm-hmm. and associating God with war or with hatred or with judgment, right. I always think somewhere Jesus is braiding a whip. <laughs> and uh, they did not laugh. Oh, no. I get it. No. <laughs> they, no. They did not laugh. But I was just like, that gives me comfort to think like somewhere Jesus is braiding a whip, right. like he is cleaning the temple. And so grace is disruptive. Grace interrupts our regularly scheduled program. Well, and grace, us... grace is, is, is that thing that enters in. And when our inner five-year-old says it's not fair, yeah, we have to go, that's not what it's about. That's, it's not about fair, right? And so this grace has been disruptive. And Jesus shows us that it can cost a lot to share it, mm-hmm. including being disruptive ourselves. Right. That's the scripture for today, right? This is the story that we're coming into. Right. And we're coming into it in the midst of Lent when we're talking about self-examination and kind of disrupting our own routines to right. do some looking at ourselves. And so this is the week that we're looking at the folks who fall into the Enneagram shame triad, the emotional types, the people Mm -hmm. who experience sorrow, particularly around image, twos, Mm -hmm. threes, and fours. These are great people. They have deep compassion. They they like the feels. They like John the best. It's their favorite, right? (laughs) (laughs) They love John. Give me the touchy-feely. I love you and you love me. And isn't that great? Right? They they love that. Um, They they feel deeply. They'll, They'll... help you out no matter what you're feeling. These are the these are the people that are often described as giving you the shirt off their back. Yeah, they you know, heart on their sleeve. Right? Right? Just everything's out there. These heart types are the ones that we're going to be talking about a little bit today. But first trees. 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 Okay. So, uh, the chapter in the book The Hidden Life of Trees that we're going to be talking about today is the tree lottery. The tree lottery? Yes, the tree lottery. Do they have to go down to the corner store? No. No. Okay. So, and they're not Ned Divine either. They don't impersonate each other to try and claim the winnings of the Irish Lotto. And if you don't know that movie reference, please, please. for the, the love of God, please go watch it because it's amazing. Tree lottery. No. So trees have to budget their strength, right? There's a certain number of things they have to do. And the three things that they really have to do is they have to grow, mm-hmm. they have to lengthen their branches so they can get as much sunlight as possible. Right. And in order to lengthen their branches, they have to thicken their trunks mm-hmm. because they have to support the weight of the branches, right? So trees have to grow. They have to reserve energy for defense, mm-hmm. which includes, you know, fighting off insects and giraffes and things right. like that. And the third thing that they have to do is what? Propagate. 
They have to propagate. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. That's the exact word I was looking for. <laughs> Trees have to propagate. Hashtag there's my biology. Yeah, the biology degree is coming in handy. They have to ensure the survival of their species, right? They right. have to pass on their own DNA. Right. Trees have to propagate. And so this is something that they have to invest energy in. But not every tree blooms every year. Okay. Some trees only really ever blossom every three to five years. Mm-hmm. The author adds a note and he says, with the effects of global warming, it's becoming more like every two to three years, which is damaging the tree's ability to grow and to defend it themselves because they are so desperate to make sure that make they, sure that they will, because they, yeah. they feel themselves dying right. <laughs> and they want to make sure that there's uh, trees behind them to take their place. We won't get into that. Every three to five years, they have to propagate. And this means that they have to not make as many leaves actually, because they have to have more space for blossoms, which means if they don't have as many leaves that they don't have as much energy. Right. So already their energy is diminished and they have to use it to do this thing they only do every few years. Mm -hmm. And this makes them incredibly vulnerable because where the energy comes from is the defense budget. Right. Often people will look at a forest and go, oh, is the forest sick? And it's like, no, it's three months before blooming season. Mm. And so the trees are not putting out as many leaves because they know they need to put right, all their energy takes... into propagation. So they have less sugar, which you know goes into the starch for the seeds, and it doesn't satisfy their daily needs as much. So they start to look a little bit sickly, but it's sort of like them preparing. So this is also when the insects attack. The insects can yep. mark time. And they can say, oh, now's the time. Like, we can get this tree totally. And so sick trees might not last the growing season. Right. And they know this because they're vulnerable. And you would think that that would mean that they would spend less time blossoming. But it's the other way around. They're going to go all in. They're going to go all in. They're going to use every last ounce of energy because they assume they're goners. Right. I'm a goner. I will do everything I can not to protect myself, but to pass on my DNA. And so even if the trees knew that they were going to be really vulnerable, even if the trees knew the insects were coming, that would not produce less blossoms. In fact, the sicker trees bloom the most. Mm-hmm. It also ex- means... This explains a lot of what I observed in orchards of the valley. Yeah. Like you would see them take out an orchard right about the time you thought that was just an amazing orchard. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh man, this one was getting really great. Like now they were all sick. Yeah. All these trees were sick. So what that means is what happens before does not predict what will happen afterwards right mm-hmm. like the being sick before doesn't mean that they're not going to produce flowers right. right but the odds of them succeeding are still not great right. so do you know how many trees each tree can successfully create to follow behind them like if if they're if they were 100 successful how many trees would each tree create meaning how many seeds would... how many seeds would become adult trees from each tree like not very many one yeah Trees are designed to replace themselves. Yeah. That's it. So then we're going to do some math. For beech trees, let's Mm -hmm. say that they bloom every five years, which is not what happens now. But let's let's say they bloom every five years. Every five years, Mm -hmm. each tree would produce 30,000 beech nuts. Mm -hmm. So 30,000 seeds per tree per blooming season. A mature tree, a sexually mature beech, is 80 years old, which got a lot of laughs in the congregation. (laughs) And they usually last to be about uh, 400 years old. Oh, wow. So between 80 and 150 years old, they're old enough to reproduce. Right. And they last to be about 400 years old, which means that they could fruit about 60 times. Okay. Okay. So if you're going to fruit 60 times, 
with 30,000 beech nuts every time, that's 1.8 million beech nuts in your lifetime in order to get one seed. I think the odds are better to play the lottery, aren't they? One seed (laughs) will develop into a fully grown tree. Yes, the odds are better to win the lottery. Wow. This is the tree lottery, and one tree to replace one tree is a high rate of success. Right. And so trees live their lives in failure. Right. They live their lives not living up to our standards. Wow. (laughs) They live their lives just trying to succeed one time and one success is enough. Yeah. And one success isn't even really that impressive. It's one seed becoming an adult tree, which may or may not last long enough to propagate itself. Wow. Because we think an 80-year-old tree is pretty old. Yeah. And yet that's just when they're becoming mature. Wow. So they have a huge failure rate. And yet trees are not ashamed of themselves. (laughs) What? Trees are not wrapped up in their success. Nope. Trees are not wrapped up in whether or not anybody else needs them around. Mm -hmm. Trees are not wrapped up in defining themselves by other people's expectations of them. Right. Trees are not ashamed to be themselves. Right. And I think one of our problems is that we so often define ourselves by our success that we forget that Jesus has broken open all of these norms so that we understand that success does not determine how much grace we receive. Right. That grace is something that is beyond success. Right. If grace is true, if what Jesus tells us about ourselves and our worthiness and God's love for us is true, then it means that even all of our brokenness and even all of our failure is not the final answer. And the way that we remind ourselves of that grace is to disrupt the routines that tell us that we are not worth it. Right. This is really hard for us to do mm-hmm. because disruption is not popular and it often makes people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And if we define ourselves by how other people receive us, then we don't want to disrupt them. Right. We are willing to live into unhealthy patterns in order to keep other people's routines safe. Yeah. And that is sad. It is sad. It's, I don't want to say it's pathetic like it's weak, but it's pathetic in the original sense of the term pathetic like it's tragic. It's tragic. Yeah. It's tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's tragic that we let all of that stand between us and what God, how God really sees us. So here's the good news. Here's how the, the shame triad comes along and helps us out. The shame triad is really good at processing sorrow and sadness. Mm-hmm. And even though they get a little wrapped up in image, mm-hmm. the shame triad is really good at compassion. Mm-hmm. They are really good at seeing what other people are experiencing and being willing to enter into that with them. Yeah. And they're usually also really good at telling us, that we are worthy of being loved because they love us. Mm -hmm. They don't always love themselves as much. Right. And so one of the questions I like to ask heart people is, would you treat yourself as well as you treat other people? Yeah. And that's fascinating when you really get somebody to look at that, Mm -hmm. how quickly sometimes they can realize, oh, maybe maybe I don't have the right perspective. Yeah, maybe I have higher standards for myself than I do for other people, which is fine. But maybe I assume that when they fail, it's okay. And when I fail, it's not. Right. This compassion, this suffering with often helps us to take the kind of action it can, it can propel us to take the kind of action we need to change the systems. Mm -hmm. If we don't allow that hang up, that other people's opinions thing to get in the way. Right. Uh, And so heart people are, they are wonderful additions to our community, human community. We need them. We absolutely need them. And we also need to help them understand that they are worth being loved and that it's okay to disrupt us from time to time. There's a priest in Pittsburgh. He's Twitter famous. Twitter famous. He's very funny. He says, you know, during Lent, there's this social media vacuum 
when all of the Catholic priests give up social media for Lent. <laughs> and he says, I'm not doing that. I'm going to sweep in and take control. <laughs> sweep into the power vacuum and become the voice of the Catholic Church. <laughs> He's very funny. And he says, the worst thing that he hears in confession mm. is not, he says he forgets 90% of the things he hears in confession anyway. And you should know that about us. We all forget 90% of the things other people think are worth being ashamed of. Right. So nobody else is thinking about it. You might still be thinking about it. Right. He says, the worst thing he hears in confession is I'm a good person. Mm. The worst thing he hears in confession is I'm a good person. Like we need to prove that we're not really people who sin. We're not really people who fall short right. or mess up or fail. It's like one out of 1.8 million beech nuts succeeds. Right. And we cannot be one of the 1.799999 whatever million that fail. We cannot be a failure. Right. He says, the worst thing he hears is that I'm a good person because we're trying to prove that we still deserve mm. God's love. Yeah. We're still trying to prove that we are good enough to be included in this family of God. Well, Jesus has made enough wine for us. Right. Jesus has chased out one of the barriers to, right. that keeps us out of the and, holy and, spaces. And Jesus keeps doing that. Like, and Jesus like that. keeps disrupting us these two things. over and over again so that we will understand that we don't have to be good before we show up. Right. I don't know that we can say that we really believe that Jesus loves sinners if we don't believe that Jesus also loves us when we fall short. Yeah. It's a lot easier to say, well, Jesus loves all of those people. Right. John Wesley had this famous moment where he had his heart strangely warmed. Yep. Yep. We've talked about it in before. In Aldersgate. We've talked about it before. He had his heart strangely warmed and he realized that even his sins were forgiven. Right. And he was willing to hold on to his guilt around his sins forever. And he, and he and while he, telling everybody else that they were forgiven, but to realize that he also was forgiven, that there was nothing between him and God either. Right. That was an incredibly liberating experience for him. Yeah. So here's what I want to say. Don't be ashamed. Be moved. Be moved. Don't be ashamed. Be moved. Because grace is so, so important. It's, a, it's a, important enough to interrupt our everyday programming. And I wish that we could all be a little right. bit more tuned into God's heart for us. Yeah. Instead of just our worries about where right. our hearts might be. Yeah. And and to realize that grace is not the lottery. Grace is not the lottery. Everybody wins. Right? It's like a vending machine. You put in a dollar, you're going to get a candy bar. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, there's but what no, I mean by no that is like, like, you know, you, your example is, is trees who have to, to produce so much for one success. Mm -hmm. Right. And yet God pours God's grace into us in ways uh, that disrupt, mm -hmm. but lead us into success. Mm-hmm in ways we would not even begin to journey. Right. And it might not be the same standard that we would have. Right. It might look totally different. And if we don't go down that path, if we don't join that journey, we might never experience it at all. Yeah. After the sermon every Sunday, we have a prayer. We have a the pastoral prayer, the prayers of the people. It's when we can lift up those things that are on our hearts or joys, our concerns mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, we can ask God for whatever we want uh, that we think is in line with what God wants, etc. And this week, instead of us praying to God, I invited us to listen to a prayer from God. Mm. And so I read this. It's from Steve Garnis Holmes, and I'll put the link on the website. It's called A Letter from God, and it's it's a prayer. And so I just invite you, if you're in your car, don't close your eyes. But if you're someplace <laughs> else, to just like sink into this and to hear these words from God for you. My dear one, as I walk with you, I see your weariness. I know even bearing love to the world is hard work and sometimes the joy gets worn down. 
I know there are days when it seems like you are no good at what you do and no one wants to receive what you offer. There are times it is clear your work has not changed anything. Times when your prayers are arrows that fall two feet from the bow. Times you think of quitting, not trying, not caring. Times of discouragement and self-doubt. I know what you feel. I know what you feel because I am with you and in you I felt that and I've been at this forever. But trust this, you have not failed. You have been present and I have been present with you. That's all that matters. I want you to know you have done good work and also that the work doesn't matter. You have been present. That is enough. What more do I myself do than be present and shine my light that few see? You are my creation, perfectly redeemed, and that is enough. You don't need to have given an offering. Jesus has shut down that temple. In your presence, your trying, even your weak, fruitless attempts at love, even your feeblest shot at trying to pay attention, I have been present. My grace has been at work. People may fail to see it, and many resist it, and you yourself may doubt it, but it is there. I live and work among the unseen. Seeds sprout underground. Stories are told whose endings, happy endings, occur only later and far away. A single stone contributes to a mountain the stone can never know. My beloved, even in your discouragement, I want you to hear my joy. You are a sparkling thread in my tapestry of the universe. Don't disparage yourself for not seeing what only I can see. I have imbued you with my grace, unseen even to you. You have given gifts you can never measure. In the end, you don't have to give an offering. You are an offering. You have been present. That matters to me. I thank you. You will be present. That gives me hope. Let go of the outcome, forego judgment, and take courage. You are my child, my beloved, in whom I am delighted. Be yourself, and let the universe be blessed. Love God. Thank you, Chris. We're just going to wipe away our tears (laughs) and do our (laughs) wrap-up. Thank you for listening to this Sunday Morning Sleep-In podcast. If you have questions for us or stories relate to what we've been discussing, shoot us an email at sundaymorningsleepin at gmail.com or find us at our website at sundaymorningsleepin.com where you'll also find links and um, connections with what we have been talking about. The scripture for this podcast is John 2, 13-22, but she also talked about, you know, earlier verses. The theme music you're hearing is Take Me Higher by Jazzer. It's traditional at the end of a worship service for the priest to deliver a blessing to the congregation. Some wise words that make everyone just a little bit holier. So here they are, beaches. I like calling people beaches. I preached about trees. <laughs> but um bum But um bum You are a huge failure. You are not a good person. God loves you anyway. Amen. Amen. Amen.